Welcome to the Birthing Instincts Podcast. I'm Dr. Stuart Fishbein, community-based practicing obstetrician and longtime advocate for birth choices. And I'm Bliss Young, a licensed midwife. Join us in our conversational style podcast where we talk about everything birth. Sometimes we laugh, sometimes we cry, but we're happy that you're here. So here we go. <laughs> I'm good. So are you ready? Are you ready this morning? Your hair is still wet. So I just wasn't sure if you were ready. You know... <laughs> I don't feel ready for life this morning, but thank God I have you as a partner. And uh, we were just chatting before we started um, that we spent a lot of time yesterday with all of the all of the um, podcast stuff. There's so many things happening and um, we love it. And we're just um, catching up. We're catching up. Uh, yeah. And I say I say often that um, I love Wednesday mornings because uh you know, our podcast comes out Wednesday mornings, but also we're recording one that comes out in a couple of weeks mm-hmm. as we speak. So Wednesdays are, are a busy day. Actually, Tuesdays are a busy day because I tend to prep for the podcast at that point. But anyway, I want to tell everybody listening, welcome, good morning, good afternoon, good evening, and good middle of the night. And the first thing I'm going to tell everybody and the last thing I'm going to tell everybody today <laughs> before we go to our Patreon group is to please check your spam box if you write to me. Because I can't tell you how many people I write to me and I write them back like that day because I'm pretty OCD about that stuff. And I don't hear from them. And then they'll they'll message me on Instagram saying, I paid you this money and you never responded. And it's like, yeah, check your spam box. It's in there. It's like, <laughs> so check your spam box. Okay. All right. So what do you have for us this morning? Well, what's first what's I want to say, can... I still miss being in the same room with you. <laughs> Oh. I miss those days when we would sit in the studio or sit in my kitchen during COVID. And, you know, I still miss that. In front of the fireplace, even. In front of the fi- our fireside chats until it got too hot <laughs> 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 to do fireside chats. Um, yeah, I, uh, I'm so glad that we have this amazing technology so that we can connect from afar and we can talk to people from Australia and all over the place, you know, England, and it's great, but there's there's still nothing like sitting next to somebody you love, right? So I just wanted to say that first. Second, I had a birth this week. I told everybody I was going to be <clears throat> having a flurry of births. Um, I still only have one out of four who's delivered, and it's what, the 23rd, 24th? So kind of had a feeling they were going to go into February anyway. So here we go. Um, but this was... Uh, an interesting story for a first time mom. She was in Ventura. So she's about 35 minutes away. Um, She had been leaking some fluid and we know how that is. Like you can't always really tell unless it's like a big gush. And we, we tested it with our little amnicator and it definitely was not looking like what we would expect it to look. Actually, they used an one from the night before to test the new fluid. And he sent me a picture and it was like neon green. (laughs) And I was like, I've never seen that color before. He's like, I used an old one. I'm like, okay, well, whatever that was, that's not it. Um, So she she was leaking and cramping. And then the next day she wasn't leaking. It was like one of those. So we were just trying to figure out like how we wanted to manage this. And um, so they were going to go in and get um, an ultrasound with Dr. Sharma and just make sure that the amniotic fluid was um, normal, which was something I offered to them to make them feel relaxed, not something that I actually required. Um, And then I get a call 530 in the morning that her water had released like fully. 
And she's a first time mom. She was having some cramping overnight that were like eight to 10 minutes apart, that kind of thing. And so I was like, okay, call your doula when you need it. You know, it was raining pretty hard over here. And I was snuggling back in to go to sleep. And 10 minutes later, the doula calls and says, uh, they just called me. And I was like, okay. And uh, she said, she's feeling rectal pressure. And I was like, (laughs) that's not doesn't seem right, you know? So I I said, okay, I'll call the dad back and kind of just check in and make sure that it's not just that because the water had released, she was feeling more sensations. And I said, Hey, what's going on? How's the spacing? And he said, um, it's, they're coming every 90 seconds. Or no, he said, he said 90 seconds. And I said, is that the length or the space in between? And he said, the space in between. And I said, okay, I'm coming. So I got dressed and he- and headed over there. It ended up that she was complete and she was starting to push, but she, because she was a first time mom, it took a couple of hours. So we had plenty of time to be there. Beautiful delivery on the bed. We never fussed with the tub because, you know, we just didn't know how long it was going to take for, for the pushing phase and um, beautiful delivery. And then she had bleeding before the placenta came out. And the cord was big and thick and it was pulsing. And so we gave some Pitocin and then we gave some more Pitocin. And I was like, I really need this placenta to come out. And I really didn't want to go in for it. Um, was was baby her- still attached? Yes. Yeah. Okay. Baby was still attached. Grandmother, nervous grandmother was there looking for my shoulder <laughs> the whole time. Um and so then we gave her some yin Yao and we gave her some Angelica to help the placenta release. And, and so I was like, really, really not wanting to go in for this placenta because I've done it before and it's so uncomfortable for the mom. And, um, and the placenta came, thank goodness. And um, when all was said and done, we gave her a couple bags of, this was one of those times when the birth was absolutely nothing. And then we did a, everything postpartum. So a couple bags of fluids. I gave her misoprostol. She needed a pretty good repair. Um, we did a cath, kind of like all of the things. Um, but the family is very happy and probably the biggest head circumference I've had yet. <laughs> 15 and a half centimeters for that baby's head. Right? But it was proportional to the baby or did the parents have big heads? No. And the dad was like, he's going to grow into his head, right? And I'm like, yes. No, he was a big baby. He was um, uh, nine and a half pounds. Oh, okay. First, first time mom. And the placenta was almost two pounds. It was massive, that placenta. So um, I, I have a feeling that just, you know, the, the change of, um, you know, the change from having all of that baby come out probably released a little bit of the placenta and I do think an edge was probably off. Um, but everything turned out great. The mom is great. Baby's great. Um, but it was one of those times I was like, Oh gosh, this is good. We're going to be here for nine hours, all these things that we're doing, but, but we can manage it at home. And that's the most important thing to know. Um, the grandfather and the grandmother were like, is this okay? Does she need to go to the hospital? I was like, you know, she lost a considerable amount of blood, but we are managing it. And if I felt like we needed what the hospital had to offer, I promise you that we would go in. So, yeah. Yeah. Well, that just is an example of the importance of what we carry in our birth kits. And 
and how we are prepared to handle those sort of things. And you use your judgment. Uh, it's not a number of how much blood that's lost because, first of all, that's an estimate anyway. It is mm -hmm. more of a assessment of the mom. Yeah, she was stable. What is what's her pulse? Can she stand up? Is she dizzy? Those sorts of things and that sort of thing. I have a question for you though, and I don't know that you know the answer to it. Okay. But obviously, when you gave pitocin to this mom mm -hmm. with the cord still attached and cord still pulsating, mm -hmm. so does that pitocin cross into the baby? And is that is that something we should even think about? Um, you mean should I have cut the cord? Question. Hmm. I'm just wondering. Um, I mean, again, I, I think the cord transfusion is probably better for the baby than the risk of it getting some Pitocin. That's what I But, mm -hmm. you know, we talk about Pitocin and oxytocin receptors and all that stuff. And, you know, I'm not going to dive into that's not our topic today. But yeah. I'm just I'm just throwing it out there for food for thought for people to think about. Um, because normally we don't give Pitocin until after the placenta is out, generally. And they're bleeding. We don't. Right. We but don't. In the hospital, they do. Yeah. Well, I, that's we. <laughs> yeah. Wait. What is what is our topic today? <laughs> our topic today is um we wanted to talk about sometimes we start to comment about we start to post things and people comment if I hadn't been in the hospital my baby or I would have died. And so we just feel like this comes up so often that um this would be a really good thing to just kind of chat about so it's not we're not going into a paper or talking about studies or anything we're just talking about our personal experiences and what we've seen and heard and um we think it would be a good thing to discuss so hope yeah. you guys like it okay but i have a lot of stuff first surprise yeah, no <laughs> first how I are you by the way you didn't what? you didn't you didn't check in how are you are you okay i'm good yeah yeah yeah, I gained a lot of weight on my travels and I've lost most of it back. So I feel better about that. Okay. <laughs> right. And, you know, when I'm at home, I can I can eat what I want, healthy stuff, and I can eat when I want. When you're traveling, you know, you usually grab a breakfast or just even a, you know, at, at, a, at a conference, you're going to grab a pastry or something that's, they're serving bagels or pastries. And then at lunch, everybody goes out for lunch. And then at dinner, usually you get taken out for dinner, you go out for dinner and eat a lot. And of course, you drink a lot usually. <laughs> so, and then you're traveling on airports and, and, uh, that food is just there. So, yep. and I can't not eat anything. And right. then fortunately on my American airlines flat flight back, they ran out of food. <laughs> so they didn't have anything to serve. They didn't have anything to service except some sort of vegan thingamajig. And I wasn't going to eat that. So <laughs> anyway, um, I want to catch up on some things. First of all, I want to say a shout out to Zool and all the uh, midwives of St. Peter's uh, in St. Petersburg, Florida. Um, of course, there were no MDs there, which is typical, but we had about 22 people. It was great. And it was at a studio that belongs to an old client of mine who had twins with me 21 years ago at Cedar sinai Medical Center vaginally. Wow. And I want to thank Forbes and her ex-husband, Tom, who's now just strangely now the boyfriend of Zool, uh, which is the weirdest thing. And we got they were all there. I got to have breakfast with Forbes and Tom and I went out with a bunch of guys, people to dinner and, and they put me up in their condo, uh, which is right across the street from the Gulf of Mexico and on Treasure Island. And it was and it was really nice. I mean, the weather was blah. You know, it was in the 50s mostly or, or low 60s, which is not bad when you're in the rest of the country. But it was overcast and gray skies, except the last day or two. 
Um, but it was a great, it was a great conference. It was well received as always. There's some nice posts on Instagram. And then um, I want to say that I listened this morning because I got an announcement from I get my podcast updates. They they pop up on my phone on the uh, you know on the screen. And one was the evidence-based birth podcast that came out today, or I think maybe yesterday, uh, with our friend and colleague uh, Emiliano Chavira talking about breech birth. And I it's 51 minutes long. I listened to it this morning um, as I was making breakfast and prepping for this. It's great. If you want a good synopsis on breech birth, Rebecca asks great questions. Emiliano is very eloquent when he answers, covered all the topics. So that's Evidence-Based Birth Podcast with Dr. Chavira. Love and of it. course, he also is talking about the training that's going on and saying that, you know, the training that he hears from Breach Without Borders, or, or he, and he knows me, and that very few MDs come to these things. And he's hopeful that that's changing, but it's not going to be a sudden epiphany of, of change that's coming. And that women deserve to have that choice. Oh, and a thing that he said, which was really brilliant, that I hadn't heard before, was when when you're if you're an internist, and you have a, a, a patient that has heart disease or myocarditis or or angina or something like that, you generally refer them to a cardiologist. And if you're an internist and you have somebody that might have gallbladder disease or something else, you might refer them to a hepatologist or whatever. You might refer them to a gastroenterologist or a specialist. But when it comes to breech birth, and there are specialists around like Chavira, no doctors will say to a woman who's got a breech baby, Oh, I'm not an expert in that, but but um, we have an expert, just like we do a cardiologist. We have a breech birth expert. We sh I'm going to send you to him. And they don't think of it like that. Because yeah. all, they, all they want to do, as he says, is just get the C-section scheduled and get it done. Yeah, and, yeah. And he works in a hospital with, you know, he's a hospital-based physician. And he works with a lot of other doctors in the hospital. And he says he gets no referrals from uh, almost, he says one or two occasionally but all the referrals he gets come from midwives. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. And that reminds me, Stu, um, we mentioned that you are coming out to my area in the central coast of California in March. We've moved it to May, May 18th and 19th, I believe is the weekend. Um, and I already know that one doctor is coming and I'm yeah. working on, I'm working on a couple of more. And that's the main reason that I wanted to have the training out here. Um, I, you know, I love for midwives to be able to get additional training, but I really want more options here in our area for breach deliveries. So I'm really hoping that I can, I have my eye on three doctors that I really would love to be able to attend. So we'll see how that goes and we'll keep you guys updated. That's great. And I, you know, I have a very busy schedule, by the way, you can go to my events page on my on birthinginstincts.com and you can see where I'm going to be. Uh, and hopefully there'll be one in your neighborhood coming soon. Anyway, but, but uh, come wait, but come to California because Stu and oh, I will be together. We will be together. Maybe and we'll, that's uh, rare. Maybe we'll even do an evening. We could do a, uh, Instagram live or something. Yeah. 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 We'll do something fun, but okay. um, come join us in May. Another podcast that's only got five parts to it, which I listened to re re recently, is called The Retrievals. And it's about some shenanigans and bad stuff that went on at Yale University, reproductive thing about somebody stealing the fentanyl and, and women having the, uh, egg retrievals with no, with no analgesia. Uh, the woman got arrested and all that stuff. But many women were traumatized by this. It's a five-part series. It's really good. And ultimately, it's just an example of of the system not paying attention to patients, in this case, women, complaining. Mm 
about the pain. They would just say, well, give her more medicine. Or they would think, oh, it's just your low tolerance to pain. Mm -hmm. We need to listen to women. Listen, and men too. But but listen to the patients. They have a lot to tell us. Mm -hmm. And that that was really cool. That was really um, a a heartbreaking uh, five-part series, but still very, very good. And then um, uh, I I found out recently that Belgium... uh, won't allow elements to be delivered anymore. <laughs> Why? You know what? Regulars gotta, regulators got to regulate, Bliss. We don't know I, why, though? I have no idea. Huh. Interesting. Right? I, have no, I, I have no idea. You know, um, I'm just saying that somebody messaged me that this morning on Instagram, and it's like, yeah, I'm not surprised. And I just said regulators have to regulate because – they have to come up with some reason not to be able to buy this product. And I, I don't know. Maybe the element people know. It's probably a tax or custom thing, or maybe element pulled out because they were going to... I don't know. I don't even want to speculate. I just want to say that's that's kind of just stupid. It's stupid. Um, okay, what, do, what else do I have here? Oh, uh, I, a quick follow-up on abruption. We talked about that in a podcast not too long ago. Um, the This is a... Uh, about the recurrence rate of abruption. We didn't really have good numbers when we did that podcast. Somebody sent me this article. I wish I could remember who sent it to me. And it's from the Wiley Online Library and the British Journal of OBGYN. And I'll put the reference in the show notes. But it just says, the aim of this study was to assess the recurrence of placental abruption by severity, comparing the risk in a woman with that of a recurrence in her sister and in the partner of her brother. So it's an interesting premise. familial reoccurrence, not in the same woman. And also in the same woman, depending on the severity of the abruption. So here's what they found. Okay. They found the adjusted odds ratio of recurrence of mild and severe abruption were 1.7% for mild. And, excuse me. Yeah, 1.7% for mild and 3.8% for severe. So if somebody has a severe abruption, the chance of recurrence looks like it's about one in 25. Interesting. Okay. If you have mm-hmm. a mild abruption, it's only like one in 50. Okay. Um, and in the general population, the risks of abruption are about 0.2%. Because to me, I would think abruption is just kind of a random situation, but maybe it really does have to do with the lining or the way that her body produces the fibrogen and that kind of thing that connects, um, right? The two of them. Yeah, but still, what what is that? If it's four percent, that means ninety six percent of people with a severe abruption won't have a recurrence. Yeah, it's so, true, but it's interest. It's interesting that there that there's an increase um, in reoccurrence. I wouldn't have thought that to be true, but it's interesting. I think the last interesting part: the estimated heritability between sisters of severe abruption was sixteen percent. Random. Well. <laughs> No, that's, I mean, the, the normal random rate would be less than 1%. So, no, I just mean, I mean, that's a, that's random that it would oh. be genetic somehow. Like, I can't even wrap my mind around what that means. Yeah, but obviously they don't understand it because, again, 16% that recurrence means 84% of sisters won't have it. But if your sister has a severe abruption, you have a 16% chance of having an abruption. That's relatively interesting. However, no excess rate of abruption was observed between sisters and brothers' partners. So it's not something that's carried through sperm. 
<laughs> Whatever that means. Conclusion. The recurrence risk of placental abruption in the same woman was higher after severe than mild abruption. And severe abruption was associated with a twofold risk in sisters. Pregnancies following a second abruption should be considered high risk. We know how you feel about that. Yeah. Well, no. I mean, they should be given information. Yes. And then the determination <laughs> of high risk really belongs to the informed patient. You know, this is a standard on our podcast, and it really should be a standard in medicine altogether. Okay. That's that. Let's see what else I have here. Oh, and then I have some COVID stuff, which, um, again, I'm not doing because COVID is an issue anymore. I'm doing it because once you start to see the way they do these things, it'll hopefully inform you in the future of what to believe <laughs> and, and what not to believe. Okay. Um, for those that want to blindly trust ACOG, there's some warnings here. All right. This was an article from, uh, when was the date on this? January 23rd. And it's by Peter McCullough, who I quote often. He's a renowned cardiologist. He says this, the rush to mass vaccinate the world with genetic vaccines launched in 2021 with a reckless hubris that will go down in history. With no assurances on safety or efficacy, the American College of Obstetrics and Gynecology uh, broke the time-honored conservative stance on novel products in pregnant women, what we call the precautionary principle, and broadly endorsed the shots that skipped all preclinical and clinical testing during gestation. Um, the American College recommends, these are their key recommendations on their COVID-19 vaccine uh, conversation guide. It says, no, I need my, it's a really tiny print here. So the American College of Obstetric and Gynecologists strongly recommends that pregnant individuals be vaccinated against COVID-19. Vaccination may occur in any trimester and emphasis should be on vaccine receipt as soon as possible to maximize maternal and fetal health. For patients who do not receive any COVID-19 vaccine, the discussion should be documented in the patient's medical record. During subsequent office visits, obstetricians, gynecologists should address the ongoing questions and concerns and offer vaccination again. So we talked about how they say if you counsel them and they don't choose to do what you counseled them, that it isn't their choice. It's that you actually counseled them wrong. <laughs> okay. Right. And they're reiterating that. And by the way, they're saying that you can get vaccinated in any trimester. I mean, we tell people not to do anything if they can in the first trimester. But ACOG said, oh, go get your COVID vaccine. It's fine. The, they're saying that the benefits outweigh the risks. But the world literature is so heavily tilted and the scales are so heavily tilted that uh, that is not true, and especially in pregnant women, but it's not true in people my age, your age, or especially two, three, five, six, 10-year-olds, 15-year-olds. Um, but for this, this is their guidelines. Now, we know that they were paid by the CDC or the FDA or some other government entity to make these guidelines, to push this vaccine to pregnant women, violating every oath they could possibly have ever taken. And the last one says COVID-19 vaccines may be administered simultaneously with other vaccines, such as influenza and Tdap vaccines. So again, let's, in, let's inject a woman with a vaccine that's never been tested for safety with two other vaccines that have never been tested in a randomized placebo-controlled trial for safety, because that's a good idea. Okay, so McCullough goes on and says, now years later, scientists are filling in the knowledge gaps. Actually, it's been around for a while with results that are, that are making many in the clinical community uncomfortable. In short, they found that pregnant rats injected with Pfizer BNT162B2 vaccine, or the Pfizer uh, COVID vaccine, 
had male progeny in particular that tended to have concordant neurodegenerative changes with impaired behaviors on standardized testing. Now, curious how they standardizedly test a rat, but or whatever, but it's still kind of interesting. And, and of course, you know, these are rats, they're not humans, but they want you to, um, they want you to, to, to believe that I tested a vaccine on 10 mice and it's safe. So then it must be safe, but here bad results in rats, but they want to tell you that, well, rats aren't the same, but so which is it? Right. Okay. These male specific outcomes, including autism, like behaviors, reduced neuronal counts and impaired motor performance emphasize the potential neural developmental implications of the vaccine. He goes on to say, I'm going to skip that. These data are not reassuring to millions of mothers who are encouraged to, or coerced into experimental ge genetic vaccination. Those who were vaccinated during pregnancy should be wary of these results and keep a careful eye on their child's development. Okay. Okay. All right. On the same note, uh, ACOG is now pushing the RSV vaccine. I did a reel on that a while back and a couple of people have asked me for it. I've sent it to them. But it's, you, know, you can scroll back on my Instagram page. You'll find it on the posts. Um, but uh, have you heard the latest, latest Labor of Love podcast, which is ACOG's podcast, focuses on RSV prevention and vaccination. The new paternal RSV vaccine serves as a major step toward preventing RSV in infants after birth. Went over the numbers in that reel. However, the vaccine's rollout has come with challenges, including cost and access issues. In this first episode of the Labor of Love podcast, season three, guests Brenna Hughes, MD, and I, wanna, I wanted to specifically put these names out there. They're putting their names on it. I'm putting them out there. Uh, from Duke University and Nama Joseph from Boston Medical Center, join host Veronica Pimentel, MD, MS, F Fellow of the American College, to discuss the latest recommendations for RSV maternal vaccination and share advice about how clinicians can counsel patients to make the best choice for themselves and their family. And I would just say, I would stick the word correctly, counsel patients to get the outcome that they desire. Um, and then for patients, they say for RSV, they say these things. They say, uh, you have these resources you can click on. You can go to these things. COVID-19 vaccines, answers from OBGYNs. Do you think it's Bipartisan? I don't know. Do you? <laughs> no, of course not. <laughs> Pregnant. Top three reasons why you should get, or you need a COVID vaccine. Not you should get, you need a COVID vaccine. And then pregnant. Top three reason, reasons why you need the flu vaccine. And then pregnant. Top three reasons why you need the Tdap vaccine. You can go to ACOG and you guys can all learn the top three reasons why you need all these vaccines. And the last one is something I discussed on a previous podcast where they did like an interview and they wrote an article about, should I get the RSV, RSV vaccine during pregnancy? And of course the answer from ACOG is? Yes. Yes. Okay. Um, get them all. So get here's a letter all. from Valerie, one of our listeners. She wrote us and she says, after the last few podcasts talking about vaccines and the new RSV vaccine, I had to chime in about our recent experience at our four-month-old well-child visit. Here are the highlights. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm laughing because I know what's coming, but uh, you got you all listening don't. After the nurse weighed and measured our daughter, she said, quote, I'll see you in a bit for some fun. Hmm. 
which I didn't realize until later was a snarky comment in reference to the nurse thinking she'd be administering vaccines to my daughter at the end of the appointment. So what she means by fun is means like screaming and holding down your child uh, so that I can get these, I don't know how, what kind of injections you get at four months, but whatever you get. Um, then the doctor said, had zero discussion with us during the visit on what vaccines my daughter should be getting and why. Instead, I went to get her dressed after the exam. She said in a cheery way, the doctor said in a cheery way, you can leave her pants off. The nurse will be in for her vaccines. I politely reminded her we aren't planning to vaccinate, which led her once to once again, we had already went over this two-month appointment, uh, her two-month appointment, questioning us why and us needing to provide our rationale, lack of safety data, high levels of aluminum, risk of adverse event from the vaccine outweighing the risks of our daughter contracting or having a serious complication for many of these illnesses. Um, the other thing I'll make a point about that is that they had this conversation two months ago with the same doctor, and in the medical model, the doctor had no idea, could not remember, or didn't bother even looking at her notes before she walked in the room. Um, I generally asked her if she would have time to sit down and discuss her thoughts further and point us in any data or studies we might not be familiar with. She gave us the vaccine package inserts and left it at that. By the way, if you read the package inserts, you're not going to want to take this vaccine. All right. So I don't know why she did that. After we were home, I got an alert that my daughter's chart had been updated. So I read the appointment notes to see that the doctor had added, quote, vaccine counseling, unquote, as an active condition to her chart. So in my opinion, that is to putting in the chart to essentially cover her ass. Yeah. That she, mm -hmm. that she talked about it, right? Mm -hmm. But why is which that? Is a, you know, it's an active okay. condition. Yeah, but it's in the problem okay. list. No, but I'm just saying, like, we do need to chart when we when we give people informed consent. And, you know, that that is nor a normal part of our job. Okay. Yeah. Okay, good. That's <laughs> why that's why we're 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 yin and yang or yang and yang, whatever we are. The yeah. final kicker, I had just taken my daughter to be seen at the same clinic three days earlier because of cold symptoms as she was experiencing. And she tested positive for RSV. Mm hmm. She was congested, had a slight cough for a day, never had a fever, and was fully recovered after four days. I thank the beauty of breastfeeding, she said. At her well-child visit, our doctor was said how surprised she was with how quickly my daughter recovered. She then re referenced how the new RSV vaccine prevents against serious illness. The irony. <laughs> you know, it's a lack of basic understanding of immunology or, or a choice. So they're either, brain, they're either being brainwashed or they're totally corrupted. Neither one is a is a good answer. Yeah. But the, the theory of natural immunity being better than any vaccine immunity has always been out there until three years ago when they when they changed it. <laughs> when they changed the definition. When they, when they changed it. <laughs> okay. And one last thing. Um, this is from uh, Dr. Sarah Carnes on Instagram, somebody I follow. She is very smart, posts a lot of brilliant stuff. Are you moving <laughs> away from vaccines? Oh, I haven't been with vaccines for at least several years. No, no, no. I mean, in your, in, in this. Oh, no, no. This is, no. Okay. This is the last thing about vaccines. Okay. Because then we were going to talk about some comments. <laughs> <laughs> I know. I know. Yeah. I was wondering what you were asking me that question for. Am I moving away from vaccines? Yes. I, <laughs> You're like, uh, where have I've, you been for the last Long ago, I, I moved away. Okay. Um, well, Blue Shield pays bonuses to pediatricians based on the percent of their children in their practice who are vaccinated.
Mm-hmm. And she got a hold of this memo, which which is often the case, is no longer on their website. But these things, you know, the, the internet lives forever. And you can either take screenshots or you can, there's a thing called the Wayback um, site that you can go and they often keep everything that's on mm-hmm. there. And just so you know, if your practice meets the, these, the below thresholds for vaccination with at least one dose by September 1st, and this was 2021 for the COVID vaccine, you will receive initial incentive payments based on the following. If 30% of your Anthem members are vaccinated, you get $20 per patient. 40%, you get $45 per patient. 50% of your vaccinated, uh, you vaccinate 50% of your, of your, of your kids, $70 bonus per patient. And 60% was $100. And if you have 75% of your practice vaccinated with the COVID vaccine in 2021, uh, you got $125 bonus. That's a, that could be a lot of money. You think? <laughs> yeah. But think about think about the Hippocratic Oath and the and the ethics behind taking money yeah. to change or coerce your your. Now, if you're a true believer, that's fine. But still, you should counsel them, telling them that at that time in September 2021. There still, there's no, there's, there, you know, there's data now of, of detriment, but there was no data of safety. And if you didn't know that, you know, that's what you're, that's what you go to a doctor for. The doctor's supposed to be doing some homework at night, reading some journals. Journals are sometimes corrupted, but checking things out. How do all the people that listen to our podcast know these things? And it's not just from listening to our podcast. They they choose us partly because of confirmation bias, because we we affirm their their beliefs and it makes us feel comfortable it's consonant cognitions it's not dissonant cognitions so um but how do doctors do that how do they live with yourself and if you're doc you should ask your pediatrician did you get a bonus no probably not going to tell you but if they did you should you should find a new doctor all right anyway that's just that okay so that is i think uh yeah that's it for my vaccine stuff so you wanted to talk about something well, you, you know, I, we did, um, there was a post from us, a, a quote of yours that talked about Gardasil and it got a lot of attention and there was a comment from Mama Nurture, um, ACU, she's an acupuncturist in Los Angeles. Um, and she started, um, commenting about why we felt like Gardasil was not a good vaccine. She ended up saying, I had no idea that you guys were anti-vaxxers. And I said, I'm not an anti-vaxxer. I'm pro-choice. And so we got into a little bit of a debate, which I don't normally do, but I just didn't want to leave some of these comments out there without going back to them. So I don't even know where to start really, Stu. But, you know, I think that what you were just saying about the doctors getting paid really, um, aligns with this particular comment. She said, I apologize if you're offended because I said I was offended that she called me an anti-vaxxer. I'm offended by your perspective that vaccine scientists and pediatricians know less than you guys and are choosing to deliberately harm children for profit. Your opinion flies in the face of evidence, even (laughs) if it's it's popular, which I don't think our opinion is necessarily popular. And even if people have- It's popular with our listeners, but- Yeah. Yeah. And even if there are books written about it. Oh. There are 
there are rationale explanations for what happened to these girls. It would be nice to see a balanced take on this topic. And I said, there's plenty of information out there to push vaccines. We are offering the information that most people don't talk about. I'm not anti-vaccine. I'm pro-choice and bodily pro-bodily autonomy. Everything we put in our body causes harm, can cause harm. People should know and understand why you might may not want to take a medication, vaccinations, or the like without careful consideration of the risks. Beyond that, we believe that adult humans can decide for themselves. We are also vehemently opposed to government regulation forcing families to do so. And if you don't believe that there are nefarious motives behind the laws and protections given to pharmaceutical companies regarding vaccine injuries, then you aren't really willing to see the other side. This has been proven time and time again. Um, so she says, who exactly is being nefarious? Which sy systems are explicitly rigged against patients? Why would 98% of doctors support vaccines for which they make no money? Where, where, where is this woman coming from? Right. I mean, well, not only do they make no, not only is it not that they don't make money, it's probably the number one draw to bring bring children into their office. I, I don't, I don't even understand the concept. I, uh, you know, talking about, I mentioned brainwashing or corruption and I'm, I'm not personally attacking this person. I would consider myself to be anti-vax and I'll wear it proudly. All right. Because I've looked at the research and I've done, I've done a deep dive in the last two years into mm -hmm. books. I never would have thought I would ever read. Um, and the idea that, that, the books that she recommends are okay, but the other books are not to be believed. I don't see any books out there telling you. No, how she's saying she's saying that we shouldn't be listening to just books. We should be listening to things like the World Health Organization and the science. That's there. well, okay. Then you know, listen. I, I don't know what to say to somebody like that. Uh, I can just tell you that here are some examples of things that the medical community thought was a good idea. And that was in the last hundred years, and that would be giving children mercury and arsenic and and medicines containing aluminum. That would be thalidomide. That would be DES. That would be Vioxx. That would be SSRIs. That would be some of the statins. Um, uh, I, you know, I got this whole list, and I'm drawing a blank now. But I could go on and on and on with Medicaid remdesivir. She probably believes remdesivir was a good it was a good drug. It, it, it they took people that really could have been treated days earlier with some of the the remedies that are out there now and we protocols that we know, which I'm sure she believes are horse medicine. But um, they they put them on remdesivir and they basically killed a respirator remdesivir and they died of renal failure, and it happened over and over and over again. And if you just look, people have to look outside of their own box. You can't just read. The, the ACOG's Green Journal or whatever. She's a chiropractor, so I don't know what she's reading. World Health Organization, she quoted Well, well the World Health Organization is, is a tyrannical organization, and we're going to talk about that. Good lead-in in our Patreon segment today. I'm going to do a little bit of deep dive into what really happened with Zika virus. Zika virus isn't a thing right now, but it was a thing in 2015 and 2016. Mm -hmm. And was it really a thing? Or was it some other thing that was a thing? And what was the role of the World Health Organization in that? But if, you know, the World Health Organization wants to take over sovereignty from every country in the world and be able to declare 
uh, a pandemic, and then every they can tell countries what they have to do and take away liberties. And you know that's not okay here. That may be okay in China. It's not okay in North Korea or not in Korea, China either. But it's it's certainly not okay here. So yeah. we, I mean, we, I don't think it's okay to anywhere. I think across the globe, human beings should have the right to decide what to do with their bodies. So I will stand for that. Right. Anyway. Not, we, we, these are the kind of things, Bliss, where you get into a discussion. And it's sort of, it's, it's, it's like a Mobius strip, you know, it just keeps going around and around and around and eventually you have to get off. Right. I did. Get off, right? <laughs> I said, we have to agree to disagree, yeah. but it just, it, you know, like when you said, I don't know where she's coming from. I had this similar feeling like, how are we, how are we talking about the same organizations? How are we, you know, it's just so interesting. Like, so interesting. I mean, we've talked about this many times, how, we can be looking at the same situation and see see it from such a different perspective. So, agree to disagree. I well, guess. you know, it's an it's an easier life to believe that the people in uh, in authority have your best interest at heart. It just is an easier life to do that. It's to believe that the CDC and the FDA have your best interest, that ACOG and the American Medical Association have your best interest. But honestly, people, right? Keep looking. There, there, there are they're an industrial lobby. They are lobbying for themselves. And by the way. This gets into an ethics conversation a little bit about fiduciary duty. Fiduciary duty of us primary caregivers, we primary caregivers, S, we, us, we, one, well, one of those, I can't remember which pronoun it is, but but of primary caregivers is to um, take care of, of our client. Our primary duty is our client. That's not ACOG's primary duty. That's not the American Medical Association or the WHO's primary duty. Their primary duty is to stay financially viable and to stay in power and make sure they keep their salaries because their obligations and their and their um, ethics-based thing is not beneficence. It's to their product. It's like the CEO of a, or the chief financial officer of a hospital. His ethics and, and, and obligations are different than, than the doctors and nurses working in the hospital. Yeah, they may, and they may make good sound bites and they may make good commercials and they may make have a good mission statement. But ultimately, if the hospital can't keep its doors open, then it fails. And if it, by keeping its doors open, we need to have higher C section rates or more babies admitted to the NICU or draw labs on everybody, then that's what we're going to mandate. We're going to make policies that just dictate that. Yeah. But and, then that's and ethical. We're, we're going to move on. But oh, damn it. I, <laughs> I will say that that all goes back to having our health system tied into capitalism. So it's not necessarily, these are bad people always. I know you have, you think that sometimes that's different, but it really is. It's the system. The system is not working for us. And so we need to be thinking a little bit bigger than that. Right. And okay. if it's not, if it's not working for us, then that means that trusting it blindly mm -hmm. is really a fool's errand. And you get what and you know, and you get what you you get what you deserve. Wow. <laughs> right. And on that note, we're gonna take a little break from our sponsors. Bliss, what is Element? L M N T. It's a amazing sponsor. First of all, we love them so much. But it's a tasty electrolyte drink with all of the good stuff and none of the BS, like us. That's right. <laughs> I taught you well. <laughs> it is. It, it's got a lot of uh, good salts in it and uh, no sugar. 
I even uh, took a little notes here and they have um, a thousand milligrams of sodium, 200 milligrams of potassium and 60 milligrams of magnesium, which helps maintain fluid balance, regulates your blood pressure and supports muscle function, mood and bone health. Which is great for pregnant mamas, breastfeeding moms, and absolutely for birth workers. So make sure that you have some in your in your birth bag if you need it or if your clients do in labor. For sure. Electrolyte deficiency or imbalances can cause like headache, cramps, fatigue, and weakness, especially in the birthing world. You know, a long time when we, before when I used to do it, but you still do. <laughs> you have a lot <laughs> of sleep after being up all night and snacking on like not such good food sometimes. And I carry it with me whenever I travel and I add it to my water, like in the hotel room and stuff. And I've spent a lot of time recently in hotel rooms. It's a great sponsor and they've, They've been doing really well, and I'm really proud to be um, supporting them. They have multiple flavors. Your uh, favorite is raspberry, right? Raspberry is mine, and yours is mango yeah. chili. But I, I do have I do have some sad news. Aww. So long, old friend, to lemon habanero. Oh, man. They discontinued it? So they could concentrate on citrus salt, raspberry salt, orange salt, raw unflavored, mango chili, chocolate salt, and watermelon salt. Maybe they're going to come out with some new stuff too. But I trust <laughs> elements. I trust that uh, they've done a deep dive into the research. They put their whole soul into it. We would like you to go to drink element. That's drink backslash birthing instincts, all one word. And when you do that, you'll get a free sample pack with your every order. Go do it. Go do it. Hi, okay. everybody. We're back. <laughs> We're back. I love that little break though. It gives me a chance to like take a sip of water. <laughs> <laughs> That's it. All right. Um, so our topic today is um, if I hadn't been in the hospital, I would have died. Now, no, we no. my baby would have died. My my baby or myself. Would oh, have died. okay. Right. Okay. But you didn't yeah. say baby. I wanted to make sure you said baby. Thank you. So baby. if I hadn't been in the hospital, my baby would have died or or I would have died, right? Mm -hmm. Okay. Mm -hmm. And these are, you know, these are the comments that we hear a lot of times when we're talking about things like home birth or, um, you know, birthing outside of the hospital or working with midwives. And we just thought it would be a good topic to kind of discuss. Do we believe that there is a time and a place for hospitals, for medications, for interventions, for C-sections, for inductions, for monitoring babies, for additional testing? Absolutely. Um, I'm so thankful as a midwife in the community that I can take my patients, clients to the hospital or refer them to a specialist if I feel like something is out of my scope. Um, I am grateful that we have those things available. However, they are overused um, often in our system. And so that is what we are going to kind of start to unpack and pull apart Obviously, we can't address every scenario, and we're not um, we're not trying to diminish the severity of the situations that people have been faced with. And it's a really hard thing to hear sometimes that what you were told may not have been your only option. Um, and so, I know that this can be a difficult conversation for some people, and I and I we don't want to occur like we're being insensitive to very serious situations. However, there are many times that people are told things. For example, I'll give you one. I was getting my hair done recently from um, my hairdresser is on maternity leave. So she referred me to someone else. 
And we were, you know, I mentioned that I'm a midwife and then obviously like things about people's birth stories start to come up and she's very happy with her care. So I didn't talk to her at all about this, but she, um, had two C-sections and she said she had to have her first C-section because the baby's cord was around the neck. Right. So this is not an indication on its own, just from an ultrasound with a cord around the neck that you need to have a cesarean and it's not a life-threatening situation. So um, these are the kinds of things that we hear that you know, in the moment, I would not address that with the woman because she was not asking my opinion and she was not upset about her situation. But in my, in my heart, I felt sad for her that she believed that she needed a cesarean and that she never had the opportunity to be able to experience, um, having a vaginal delivery, um, and not having to recover from major surgery twice. So you're you're saying that she had a elective cesarean section because of the cord around the neck, or you don't know the details? Oh, so it wasn't that she was having deep variables because or anything like that? Oh my gosh! Okay, all right. Did I say just? I just said gosh. Sorry. Do me. Do me. I don't know. It's, it's very very midwestern. I think. Um, can I can I just uh, have, add a little bit to that? Okay. So if I hadn't been in the hospital, my baby would have died. Okay. Well, obviously sometimes that's true. But what I would say to that is most of the time it's questionable. And especially questionable when there was no emergency when you walked into the hospital. This right. is where it, this is where it gets me a lot. I mean, if you come in with an abruption, if you come in uh with a, you know, uh some other obstetrical issue, the baby's having late D cells or or whatever. Um yeah, sometimes the hospital is the best thing. And I know we've talked about that on the podcast before. They do miracles there. They they do. Um, problem is, is it's, it's overused. And so when it's not an emergency, you know, most babies, when a woman comes into the hospital in labor inside their mom's tummy, most of those babies are perfectly fine. All right. Yet a certain percentage of them end up in the NICU. And a certain percentage, and like over 30, well, I don't know what percentage because of adding all the different things, but a, but a good, like 30% of them are ending up with a cesarean section. Not necessarily emergent, but do we really believe that all those babies were, were normal inside and somehow they, they got in trouble so much that the hospital had to rescue them? And a lot of it is the narrative that they're told when you're naive and you trust you you trust the medical system as we wish we all could. Um, then they tell you that, and that's all you know, and you're going to believe it. And then you sort of again have cognitive dissonance because you do not want to hear, like if you would have spoke up and said to to the hairdresser, that would have been inappropriate because that's not what she needs to hear right now. If she asked you, it's a different question, but she didn't ask you, so you don't give that information. But ultimately. Um, they're told by the nurses or by the physician or by somebody else on the staff that, boy, thank God you were here because what would have happened? And it turns out that it was, you know, it was a iatrogenic cascade of interventions that led to that. And then, yeah, of course, thank God you were in the hospital, but it all began because you were in the hospital. Okay. And we're not talking about that, that percentage of women that actually need medical attention. We use that number all the time. I throw out about 80% 
of moms really don't require, you know, any sort. They don't have any medical issues or obstetrical issues. The twenty percent that do, the hospital is a good place to to have. And if I could digress for a second, we talk about this at the breach conference in um, in Saint Petersburg. Is that um, I would love to see most birth taken out of the hospital because the hospital just can't stop meddling. They just can't. But the problem is, is that we need the hospitals when we need the hospitals. And if we take all the normal births out of the hospital, then financially it will be non-viable for the hospital. So uh, I, I don't know what the solution is. I'm going to work on that in my brain this year and try to move it around in the garage and see what I can figure out. But I, <laughs> I, need, I need to come up with an answer for that because in many cases, the hospitals do more good than damage, but in a lot of cases, they do more damage than good. And we can't take all the normal women and, and put them into home birthing or birthing center birthing because, first of all, there aren't enough midwives to go around anyway. Um, but it, 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 there's a, there's a, you have to, this is like what I'm calling stage two thinking. Stage one thinking would tell, let's just screw the hospitals. That's stage one thinking. Stage mm -hmm. two thinking says, well, if we screw the hospitals, then what happens? Mm -hmm. And then we have problems and we have no place to go. Or we have larger and larger maternity care deserts. So, okay. All right. So what we what are some of the things that you wanted to Yeah, so let's unpack let's about. first unpack let's unpack the cord. Let's assume okay. that that people haven't heard other episodes and let's just unpack. So, why is the cord around the neck not um an emergent issue, Stu? Well, uh, you know, for many many reasons. First of all, the cord is designed beautifully by nature. Uh it has three vessels in it and the vessels are surrounded by this rubbery stuff called Warden's jelly. And some cords have more, some cords have less, and some cords have more coils. A more coiled cord is more protected. Uh, but two things about the cord. One is if you have a long cord, the fact that it's around the neck may be beneficial, actually, because it's, it's likely to prevent the possibility of something called a cord prolapse, which is something that, thank God, you were in the hospital because your baby might have died. Um, so... Nature does that, and sometimes babies get tangled up in their cord. You can see it once, two, three, four, even four times around the neck. Babies cannot, I mean, I, I never like to say never, but babies are not breathing through their trachea. So when the cord is around the neck, we tend to project on that or anthropomorphize that to being that if we had something around our neck, we'd be worried about choking. We've all seen too many stupid movies, and we see people get garroted, and we think that they're going to get choked. But babies are not breathing through their trachea. The cord around their neck is not going to choke them. They're not going to suffocate inside. They, the cord can be compressed anywhere, on the body, just next to the body, around the neck. But generally, it's not. That's nature's design is such that that's not going to happen. So the cord around the neck is really never, and I hate saying never, but it, I'm going to, just for emphasis, is never really an indication in and of itself to say to a woman, you can't labor because 30 to 40% of babies born vaginally, fine, have the cord around the neck at least once. So yeah. it's not, it's not something happens all the time at home. Well, it happens all the time in the hospital too. And they, and they're not yeah. emergencies, yeah. but what, what they, but some doctors are, it's an, again, I, I, there's a gaslighting going on here. They're telling their, their, the women, the information to skew their consent to bring them down the path that they want them to hear. And maybe whatever reason that doctor doesn't want to deal with this woman in labor or doesn't want her to go into labor, they can convince them of anything if they say that the cord is around the neck. And only a, an educated patient will then ask the question, well, 
Can you explain that to me? And the doctor probably will not be able to explain it. Oh, the cord will get squeezed. Well, why do most babies have the cord around the neck? Or a lot of babies have the cord around that don't get squeezed. Why, why, you know, and they, they won't really have a good answer. Uh, so yeah, I beat that horse. Yeah. And this is, um, this is a very common misunderstanding still to this day, I get, uh, you know, comments and questions often about what if there's a cord. Um, and so this is a really good one to educate yourself about and to understand that it is not an urgent situation merely because the cord is wrapped around some part of the body. And as you said, nature is very wise when it comes to this. So um, we're, we're still mammals. We're intended to deliver um, and survive. That's how biology works. It, we want to be able to um, to keep growing as a population. So we wouldn't, our bodies wouldn't be designed in a way where we needed medical attention for something that happens in nature normally and when and when the cord does get compressed <laughs> most babies tolerate that perfectly fine you might see a little fluctuation in their heart rate heart rate called a variable deceleration but unless those are getting deeper and deeper and deeper with slower and slower recovery and it, and delivery isn't imminent then doing a c-section for that isn't also is not all is not something that's also necessary um Babies are designed to tolerate labor. And when they don't, you can actually generally hear it, see it. Uh, you get an idea that things aren't going well, and then intervention is necessary. But again, the cord is well designed to handle those sorts of things in most babies. You know, babies with growth restriction and stuff will have sometimes what we lovingly call a wimpy cord. And so that cord has less protection and is more likely to hear it. So being in the hospital when you have that D-cell because the cord is getting compressed and it may be getting compressed, not because it's around the neck. It could be around the body. It could be around the shoulder. It could just be getting squeezed between the baby's back and the wall. We don't really understand it, why it's happening. But again, it's not an indication just because it's there. Yeah. And, and, and midwifery, when we hear those types of things, we change positions and we try different things that sometimes will take the pressure off of the cord. Um, but as you were saying... If we have decelerations at home um, and it's not improving, then this is an opportunity for us to transport to the hospital to have a more advanced um, monitoring and the possibility of utilizing additional medical services if needed. But um, that in itself is is not a reason. Um, that gets into the other one, baby's heart rate, I think is a very common one that we hear of why people go back for a C-section um, that is deemed as an emergency C-section and that becomes a life-saving story. Um, however, if you start to unpack that one, what we realize is... Um, we don't usually, and you know, like Stu just said, I never like to say never because um, there are risks in life in general, hospital, not hospital, getting in a car, whatever, is never 100% safe. There's always risks in life. Um, but we don't hear babies go from great to not great. We hear that progression like we were just talking about. Um and the reason why that we hear that in the hospital so frequently and in these stories so frequently is because of the medications that are be that are being utilized in the hospital. So um, the most common thing would be Pitocin um, or an epidural or a combination of the two of those things. Um, 
Pitocin is definitely overutilized. Um, we're doing more and more inductions. We're doing more and more um, augmentations of labor. Even when a woman is coming in already in labor, I just heard a story yesterday from somebody about she was already five centimeters dilated when she got to the hospital and was there because she felt safer in the hospital. And as soon as she got in, they tried to augment her labor. They tried to give her an IV. They tried to do all of these things. So, um, uh, but what happens is a lot of times that the baby's responding to a change in the mom's system or a change in the medication. And so frequently when, when we have those decelerations, it has to do with those medications, not necessarily because there's something inherently wrong with labor or that baby. Yeah. And here, here's another uh, example of medicine putting the cart before the horse too. And that's continuous fetal monitoring. Um, continuous fetal monitoring was never really tested before it was universally implemented. Uh, I think it was in the late sixties, early seventies. And um, there's been studies now that have looked at that the efficacy of continuous fetal monitoring and intermittent monitoring. And they found that neither one actually meets the primary goal, which is prevention of uh, hypoxic injury to the baby. Um, all the continuous fetal monitoring does is increase the rate of cesarean section. Uh, the outcomes are not better because of continuous fetal monitoring over in intermittent monitoring. Now, why does continuous fetal monitoring increase the risk of cesarean section? And that goes to the idea of the new nomenclature, which we have now, which is category one, category two, and category three fetal heart rate tracings. And this is a little more technical than, than just that, but I just want to go through this one more time. Everybody in medicine, pretty much most OBs and all nurses know what a category one tracing is. It's like a tracing that looks great. It's called a reactive trace. We used to call it a reactive tracing. And it looks great. Baby's got accelerations, no decelerations, normal, uh, normal fetal heart rate, that sort of thing. And a category three tracing is pretty much everyone knows what that is. It looks like shit and it's flatter than flat or there's huge decels or the baby's heart rate keeps going down and down and you have what's called a, you know terminal decelerations and that sort of thing and, and it and it's ominous yeah but what people don't understand is what's called a category two tracing and a category two tracing is anything from having small variable decelerations to having you know intermittent late decelerations which i'm not even sure is a thing to having a, a fetal tachycardia to having uh tracing that's a little bit flat um, nobody really knows. And so what happens in that scenario, again, a little bit because of the fear that surrounds the medicalized system and the doctors and the nurses and even the patients working in, in that system, is that they decide, listen, your baby seems to be struggling. We need to do a C-section. And when we do a C-section, uh, we often get a baby that comes out that's actually just fine. So it probably wasn't a C-section that was necessarily needed in the first place. But because the tracing was such that it, that it wasn't, it was inconclusive as to what's going on, the doctors will always err on the side of caution by recommending a C-section. And then they will tell you as justification for their C-section that your baby was in trouble. So that is interpreted by a lot of moms and dads as if I wasn't in the hospital, my baby would have died. Yeah. But as you said, a lot of those category two tracings occur because we're meddling with nature's design. In other words, a woman is restricted in her movement. She's not allowed to eat that much or anything. She um, uh, is often then numbed up with an epidural or given Pitocin to speed her up or, or whatever. And those things are physiologically changing 
nature's design. And one of the things that's really important about understanding nature's design and interventions is that before you intervene in nature's design, you have to prove it's never done, but you have to prove that the intervention is safe and efficacious. And that's often not done. They will only find out later that their intervention was useless and they'll still do it anyway. Fetal monitoring is not going away, even though papers that come out that say that there's no benefit to it. And we know that it restricts movement and we know that it's a sound that's, even if you turn the sound off, where are your eyes going? Where's the part, where's your partner's eyes going? They're watching the little thing on the monitor and they see a blip in there and they wonder what's going on or suddenly there's no tracing at all because the baby rolled over and people will come in the room because there's, they've got a little um, air traffic control system out and out at the desk <laughs> where they can see all the monitors and they see your baby suddenly not on the monitor anymore. So they come in the room the idea that maybe the, there maybe something's happened to your baby, which of course very very unlikely, that it's you had to go from a baby that's got a normal heart rate to suddenly no heart rate, um, so it's almost always that. But they come in the room, and they disturb you, and they disturb the process of labor. So again, it, it's sort of a lot of this boils down to what the practitioners are telling these women, and then these women then take that and they say, "God, thank God I was here." Absolutely. Um, more yeah. often than not, that's I'll just say that. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Um, that leads to um, me thinking about um, the twenty-four hour clock. Um, your bag being ruptured, and um, again, the reason why we would start to um, not we, but in the hospital, the reason why a lot of times they want to move labor along um, is because of the risk of infection. So I think that that would be a good one to kind of unpack as well. Okay. Um, <laughs> I, I don't, I don't know that this is one that, that unless they get infected, that they would say the hospital saved me or, or my baby, but. Uh, Absolutely. Right. So you want me to unpack? Like, again, I'm just sorry about this one, Bliss, because this one doesn't. <laughs> It doesn't register with me as much. So what were you, th what are you thinking about this one as to why women would use this one as a reason to say I had to be in the hospital? Well, because if they assume, because we don't, I don't, maybe, maybe other midwives do, but I don't have that hard, fast rule of, um, your bag is ruptured. And so we need to put you on a clock and you need to deliver within 24 hours. But if someone has that in their head and they believe that, this was a true danger to their baby and to them, even before anything happened, then that cascade of interventions start happening. Um, and I think that all of these things are reasons why you just pointed to that they're, they're told that this is a very dangerous thing. And that's why they go, you know, sometimes they're, as soon as their bag ruptures, they walk in the door or 12 hours later, you know, maybe they're not having contractions or their, their labor is just warming up. So I do think it's a it's a good one to kind of unpack. Yeah, and and I've talked about this ad nauseum about the fact that the 24 is a fake number. It doesn't mean anything. Bacteria don't know it's been 24 hours. <laughs> and if if the fluid is flowing out, if your bag is ruptured and no one's doing sticking their fingers in there or doing vaginal exams on you, then there really isn't a 24-hour rule. Some women might spike a fever at five hours in labor. And some women were ruptured for three or four days and they're fine. But somehow the medical model requires these 
you know, I have this thing called my even number rule. And even though sometimes they're not even numbers like age 35, um, that's an odd number, but it's still an even odd number. Um, if you know what I mean, um, <laughs> they make up these numbers because they have to have guidelines. They have to have, uh, algorithms. And so they come up with this 24 hour and then, it, and then it becomes, then it's sort of like the thing it's repeated over and over again. And it becomes this thing. And, and that's a really important reason why we encourage all pregnant women to, to do a deep dive. This is something, I mean, like, you know, you, sometimes you research, you research which television you're going to buy more than you research which doctor you're going to go to or which, you know, or what's going on with your body. You, yeah, need, to, absolutely. you need to change that. Right. Yeah. So they have done studies having to do with um, increased um, risk of infection with more vaginal exams. And the, this is what is happening in the hospital. Once you get into the hospital, they're going to start forcing the issue of doing vaginal exams. And they're introducing bacteria from the outside to the inside. And especially in a hospital, there's more bacteria that can be harmful to your baby and to your body than at home. Um, so even if you are planning to deliver in the hospital, um, it's, it's, this is a difficult one because you are utilizing your doctor as the person who you're working with to be able to make these decisions. So this could be a, something that when you're interviewing somebody, this is a good one to ask, what is your protocol when it comes to, um, premature rupture of membranes? Because this is one that could lead you down a path of interventions that is absolutely um, not usually indicated. And when we talk about fever, fever can be um, influenced by having an epidural. Lots of times when you have an epidural, you'll show that you have a temperature. And then you start to go down this cascade of there's a possibility that you have chorioamnitis and your baby could be in danger. It could just be that you have an epidural. So it's hard to be able to pull those things apart. And I, that's another one that I think is really important that could, you know, you could just kind of go down that path because now it looks like you have a fever, but there's not actually an infection present and your baby's not actually at risk. And so now I understand why, why you brought that up. I just wasn't thinking in that direction. And I could, I could extend that from, from that to other things that are just, um, sort of based it in fear, like uh, my baby was breech. So my baby was breech. If I hadn't been in the hospital, my baby would have died. Or I have twins. They have to be born in the hospital. As a matter of fact, if one of them is breech, I have to have a C-section because breech is dangerous. Again, again, this this is skewed information. This is, you know, it's like a broken clock. Sometimes they're right, but most of the time they're not right. And this is, again, I, I will, we'll probably say it one or two more times. This is not, a, this is a, our disclaimer is that Obviously, sometimes these things are necessary, but they're not necessary just because someone has ruptured membranes for 24 hours or just because someone is breech or has twins or just because someone has the cord around the neck or their fetal heart rate is, you know, for momentarily something that, that needs a little bit of assistance, like changing position or some IV fluid or something like that to do that. It's the same thing with other things that you, you mentioned earlier when you were talking before about like labor stalling out, like failure to progress or, or uh, shoulder dystocia. Um, you know, midwives and I manage shoulder dystocia. We don't see it very often because we are positioning patients differently in the home setting. But, uh, we, you know, we manage it at home and the babies do just fine. Uh, most shoulder dystocias, and we did a whole podcast on that, so I won't dwell on it, but most shoulder dystocias are not even shoulder dystocias because they, they, they don't meet the definition of a shoulder dystocia. But yet, 
doctor comes in, has to do some maneuvers, maybe, maybe didn't have to do them, but did them anyway. But most of the time, if they, even if they did them, but they're going to say something afterwards that's, that's sort of like, they did just, they just did this great thing. And then they say something stupid. Like, thank God you weren't at home, you know? Yeah. Or your thank next God baby, you or your next baby can't be this big. Yeah. They'll say thank that God too. You weren't at home. But the thing about shoulder dystocia in the hospital is that a lot of times you, because of all of the things that we talked about, about that's interfering with the natural physiologic process and with you feeling safe and comfortable and relaxed and being able to move because of the monitors and all of these other things, you might have choose to have an epidural more readily than you would if you were at home being able to do all the things that made you feel comfortable and, and you could cope. And when you're on an epidural and your baby doesn't have the same ability to be able to make the movements because your body is not moving, you can have um, an increased risk of shoulder dystocia and it's harder for the doctor to be able to manage that. Well, the doctors manage it differently than the midwives do. How we usually manage shoulder dystocia, the very first thing that we would do is change the maternal position because oftentimes that can remedy um, the shoulder being stuck and you, and you don't have the ability to do that when you are on an epidural, there's just less options to be able to manage it with, um, something as simply as lifting a leg or turning on your hands and knees. Um, so less yeah. options available. And maybe one last one, um, is, uh, respiratory dis Oh, yeah. say again. Hemorrhage. Oh, you will talk maybe two then two. Yeah. I want to <laughs> just talk a little bit about respiratory distress. Because mm -hmm. a baby will come out depressed mm -hmm. and the NICU team will come be called. They hit a button on the wall and the team comes down and they resuscitate your baby and everything's great. And that's easy to see how you think, how you think that that would be something that if I wasn't in the hospital, that would have been bad for my baby. But, but ultimately you have to back up for a second and do two things. One is that why did your baby have respiratory distress? And a lot of times it's the whole cascade of interventions that led to that in the first place. Small percentage of babies are going to need that attention. Midwives are trained at home to deal with that. They can't, they're not going to intubate. They're not going to uh, put in lines on a baby or anything like that. They're going to be able to stabilize a baby and transport it if it's necessary. But the incident, the times you see that in the home birth world are far less per capita than the times you see it in the hospital. So again, if your baby comes out and looks really floppy and they take it over to the, they cut the cord maybe because they have to, or they shouldn't, but they cut the cord because they have to, they, they don't know how to work on a baby on, on your, on your chest. They take the baby over to the warmer and the baby, and the baby they, comes around. It's very scary. And it absolutely we would believe that, thank God I was here and had all these uh, pediatric and neo, uh, neonatal experts to come and work on my baby. And that I could easily see how that can happen. But we, you know, you take a step back and you realize that maybe that happened because of why you were in the hospital in the, or being in the hospital in the first place. Yeah, right. and and the other thing about that, I'm really glad you brought that up, Stu. Um, is babies transition better in a warm room? Hospitals are often very cold. First of all, second of all, even in our NR NRP um, algorithm that both midwives and nurses um, study to be able to support a baby transitioning if they're having a challenging time. Um, it says, keep the cord intact. However, just like you were talking about continuous fetal monitoring, the hospital systems have not been able to adapt because what that would mean is 
they would have to have some kind of cart or something next to the bed so that they could keep that cord intact because they don't know how to work on babies in mom's arms. Um, and that's going to be a long, slow process if it ever happens. But babies transition better when their cord is attached and they can continue to get that blood from the placenta. They're in their mom's arms. Again, this is a perfect design. So the birth story that I told you guys about earlier that I had um, yesterday or the day before, I can't remember. It's all a blur now. Um, that baby came out with, the, we were kind of trying to decide if it was a four or five, but that baby came out floppy and, you know, the heart rate was great. I could feel that through the cord, um, but the baby was definitely a little bit floppy because the heart rate was good. I told my assistant, tell me when it's a minute. And the mom was welcoming the baby, stimulating the baby. I was right there the whole time and the baby continued to improve. I asked at one minute because the baby still was pretty floppy and the respiratory effort wasn't what I would like to have seen. Um, I asked if I could just change positions of the baby and I moved the baby over, did a little bit more stimulation. Baby totally came into its body. I put the baby back on mom and we were done with that. In a hospital situation, I guarantee you that would have been a clamp and a separation, which exacerbates the issue. So we look at it, like you said, thank God we were in the hospital. We had all of these things available to us. But those two things right there, three, not waiting, cutting the cord and separating mom and baby, and maybe possibly the room being super cold, um, makes that situation worse, not better. And if you don't know this, and I know that this is difficult to hear if you're one of those people who had one of these situations in the hospital. And I was thinking about our assistant, Raquel, who um, had a delivery with Dr. Fishbein at home a few years ago. And she talked about, she had three cesareans before that. She talked about it took her a long time to be able to really understand and accept and start to really dive into the information and be able to understand because it was so painful for her to know that she made some choices that could she could have made differently if she had been informed. And so this can be a really difficult thing to start to pull apart, but we want people not, we don't want to, um, we're not giving this information because we want to make people feel bad about their choices. We're giving this information because we want to pull apart what is actually happening so that we can continue to make changes to the system and that people can start to understand and tell stories that will support another woman or another family being able to look a little deeper and make better choices for herself. Um, so I'm glad you brought that, that one up because it wasn't one that was on my list. So Stu, I have a question for you. I'm shocked. What is it? <laughs> what is one thing in a woman's pregnancy that she can control? Because so much is out of our control. Uh, her nutrition? That's right. And we are so excited to be partnered with such an amazing company as needed because they have focused on pregnancy, postpartum as being some of the most nutritionally demanding time in a woman's life. And it can be influenced by her nutrition status. So they support women during this time with all kinds of amazing products. Their line just has so many options. So make sure and check them all out. But Stu's going to tell us a little bit about um, their immune support because it's turning fall and we need that a little bit more right now during this time. Yeah, Needed has an immune support uh, 
which is a popular choice right now with all the back to school germs and heading into the winter when we all tend to get sick more frequently. And the people ask sometimes, well, if I'm pregnant, can I take this product? And of course, yes, it was formulated uh, for pregnant mamas in mind. So it's uh, recommended and safe in pregnancy. Or it is intended to complement, not replace other products that they offer as well. So it's just one of those things that you add to your, you know, your prenatal vitamins, your probiotic, your maybe your stress support, your sleep and relaxation support. But Bliss, I wanted to talk about something else today. Don't forget the men. That's right. We love the men. Right. So they have a sperm support, uh, men's pre and probiotic. And they say men play a critical role in conception and healthy pregnancies. I, I, I imagine that's true. <laughs> <laughs> they do. <laughs> and the preconception health can significantly impact both fertility outcomes and also the health of their future children. Needed's men fertility plan is a must for couples trying to conceive to support the multiple components of fertility, including sperm health, gut health, optimal nutrient levels, and testosterone levels, which, by the way, are falling worldwide. So you can do this and it works. Why not? I trust Needed's products with my patients because they use scientifically studied ingredients and perform rigorous third-party testing. And unlike other products on the market, Needed designs their products from the ground up using the latest research and insights from men's fertility practitioners. So, you know, we are a woman's podcast mostly, but I don't want those dads to feel excluded. So head over to thisisneeded.com and use code birthinginstincts for 20% off your one-time order. That's right. Thanks, Needed. Yeah, and then you have one more that you wanted to talk about. Hemorrhage. Hemorrhage is a big one, I think. And, and, and that's, you know... With cord, uh, well, I think with home birth, the ones that people are, seem most afraid about are um, the cord, uh, what happens if the baby needs support, which we just talked about, and if there's a really bad bleed. Right. So um, we do carry all of the same, well, not most of the same medications that they have in the hospital. The one thing that we cannot do at home is a transfusion. Um, so if we do, if we can't stop the bleeding and we, and the mom, like we were talking about earlier, how the mom is responding, um, and those, a combination of those two things may mean it's time to go to the hospital to advance, um, the care so that we can get a transfusion if necessary. Um, but what happens in the hospital is very similar to what I was just talking about with, um, separating the baby and the mom. So there are a lot of things we're augmenting labor. Uh, moms are feeling afraid. Moms are getting separated from their babies. Um, placentas are being taken out uh, quicker than they're ready to. There's often a rule in the hospital that the placenta needs to be out within 30 minutes. And so then there's tugging and pulling and fundus fiddling, as one of my teachers like to say. Um, and all of those things can cause more bleeding. Um, so a lot of the interactions that are happening inside of the hospital are actually perpetuating the belief that birth is risky and that um, women can have these these um, torrential bleeds that can't be managed anywhere but in the hospital. And as I just mentioned, I had a bleed yesterday that was perfectly managed at home. Um, there, you know, yeah, I don't love doing all of those things. But again, and I told the mom that that's why you guys have me here. I'm here to support you in these kinds of situations. And so I'm going to do all I can to support your body to be able to clamp down. And one of the first things I tell women is 
tell your body it's done a beautiful job. You're so thankful for everything that it's done and it can release your placenta and start to clamp down like that connection rather than checking out and being afraid because that can make it worse. And I would just add again that, that in my, in my twin paper, which is still in limbo, <laughs> I get a lot of emails about that from listeners say, we want your twin paper to come out. Um, you we too. Had, we had 61 women that gave birth at home, 61 sets of twins. And we had quite a few that had estimated blood losses over a thousand or over 1500 even. And we never, we transferred zero. For blood loss. For blood, for blood loss. Obviously some of the moms we ended up like keeping in bed for a couple of days. A couple of them, we ended up putting Foley catheters in so that they wouldn't have to get out of bed to go pee. Um, but you know, this was a choice. Obviously they're given informed consent about, we could go to the hospital, you could get a transfusion. You're going to feel better if you do. And like, like, <laughs> can, can my babies go? Is it? No, your babies can't go. And, and they'll be separated from you or they'll be put in the NICU or whatever. And so they don't, they don't want to go. So these things can be done. The hospital tends to have a shorter trigger. And when they, when they have a lot of blood loss, the, the, again, it, it, it is a little bit hectic in the, in the delivery room. You get people running around. And so it starts to make it worse because fear does things that are different um, when it causes about bleeding. And they're more quick, they're more quicker to draw your blood. And then if it's low, not really assess you as a person individually, but say, well, your hemoglobin is seven. We need to transfuse you. Now, some women who have a hemoglobin seven absolutely need to be transfused. And other women are able to compensate for that and they tolerate it fine and they can get up and they can pee and they're doing everything fine and they don't need to be transfused. But the, again, if you get a transfusion or if you're bleeding heavily, it seems very dangerous. And again, the, the culture is there is to, to let people know what good work they did by saving you. And uh, again, uh, we we say this all the time. There are hospitals that are doing really good work and that all the things we just described, they're not doing. It's still a hospital, but they're not doing them. But I want to let them know that they are in the minority. And these hospitals must realize that. So I'm, I'm again, I don't want anybody, you don't want to have mothers feel bad. I don't want to have hospitals that are trying to make changes feel bad. But if you're trying to make changes... Why is that? Well, you're trying to make changes because it's not working very well. And, and an intelligent person or an intelligent hospital would look at their numbers and be honest about it and say, you know, we're not doing very well here. What can we do to try to fix that? And of course, on the other hand, you have the administration who, who says, yeah, we're doing lousy, but we're making a lot of money doing lousy. So let's just keep doing lousy. And you it's get that. It's too hard to change. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and it's, and again, it's, it, these things are so heavy in administration that you can't make changes. So all these things are reasons why I could understand someone thinking that if I hadn't been in the hospital, I, or my baby could have died. But a lot of that is, is being, you're being gaslit by, I, I don't even know what word to use, but you're being told things that aren't necessarily true by the staff because they themselves have to find a way to make all these interventions seem reasonable. Well, and they haven't seen things managed the way that we manage them at home, or they haven't seen a true physiologic birth, or they haven't seen an unmedicated birth. They haven't seen these things. You, They haven't seen enough normal. 
They only are able to see what happens inside of the hospital model, which, as I mentioned several times, there are things that happen that actually cause more problems. And they don't know that because they haven't been able to see it outside of their own fishbowl. You know what I mean by that, right? Yeah, I do know what you mean by that. And I, yeah, yeah, and it's important that we're not too cautious in what we're saying. And I don't want to hedge too much because we're saying this because it's true. And because I've seen it over and over again, and I've listened, and we both have heard stories over and over again that this is true. Now, these are anecdotal things. Nobody's done a study, but you don't need a study to tell you that these things are true. It it just happens. So childbirth is not designed to be inherently dangerous. Exactly. It's, It's arduous. It's formidable, but it's not meant to be dangerous. Yeah. Do you think we should go over a a partial list of reasons why we really do believe you would be in the hospital? We'll never be able to cover everything, but yeah, let's do it real quick because we're running out of time. So let's do it real quick. All right. So true hypertension, previa. Yeah, hypertensive disease, hypertensive disease, or even you know more likely preeclampsia. Yes. Uh huh. IUGR, uh, true polyhydramnios. Um, pre-existing conditions like a heart disease or, or seizure conditions in the mom, um, an anomaly of the babe that, um, needs immediate attention. Um, that's a, that's a good one. Yeah. Preemie. That's a good one. And I can't, I can't read the other one. (laughs) (laughs) And you mentioned cord prolapse, um, which is not something we can Yeah. Those are not predictable. Abruption, cord prolapse are not predictable. Uh, yeah. Eclamptic seizures, not predictable. Amniotic fluid embolism, not predictable. Right. Uh, uterine rupture, not predictable. These are what you're talking about are all the predictable things. Now, obviously, if those things happen in the home setting, that's not good. And yeah. those things, if they happen, could be reasons why being in the hospital did save your life. Mm-hmm. But they're rare and not predictable. So for all women to be there and then go through the cascade of interventions that the hospital inevitably does because that's just how they do things um to prevent one of those is a question that that only individual women can can make they have to decide what what what's best for me and my family exactly exactly um and then they need the information to do that and they need to know what the outcomes are in hospitals and the outcomes are at home to make that comparison right right so bliss we have a not new sponsor for fit (laughs) They've been with us for a while now, so we can't call them new anymore. But they do have some exciting new news as BirthFit has its newest member as our friend Lindsay had her baby. So congratulations, Lindsay and family. Yay! Yeah, BirthFit is focused on supporting women throughout the motherhood transition with general strength and conditioning programs for preconception, pregnancy, and the postpartum. Tell us a little bit about their programs. You know what? They cover you for all aspects of feminine care and birth and postpartum. It's really amazing. So the BirthFit Basics is a prenatal program is 30 days, no equipment necessary for any trimester of pregnancy. So you could try that out before you jump in further. And then they have a prenatal training program, which is full strength conditioning that requires minimal equipment like dumbbells, bands and a box. I had a client the other day who was laying in bed like a good 
client um, taking my suggestion. She's like, you know, just laying in bed nursing all day. I'm feeling a little sore. You know, any stretches? And I said, you should really try this lying in program that they have. It's great for postpartum. It's 30 days, one video a day, less than 10 minutes that focuses on reconnecting and honoring your body in the immediate postpartum through breathing exercises, visualization, and belly massages. I mean, come on. That sounds amazing. It is amazing. And then... Yeah. And then they have um, kind of an intermediate birth fit basics, which requires no um, equipment. So that focuses on foundational breath work and movements to reestablish a solid foundation of core and pelvic floor stability before you go back to any other fitness classes. But they also have a more extensive postpartum program, which is 12 weeks focused on building a base level of general fitness through simple lifts, tempo work, and of course, breath work. Yeah, the birth community is where you want to be if you're trying to conceive or know you want to be in the next one to three years. This is a monthly membership program by Women for Women that focuses on general strength and conditioning with respect around one's menstrual cycle. So go to birthfit.com and use the code INSTINCTS1, that's the number one, to get a discount on the basics prenatal program. Or go to birthfit.com, use the code INSTINCTS2 to get a discount on the basics postpartum program. We love BirthFit. It's OB and midwife approved. Absolutely. And go check out Lindsay. I mean, she looks great. And she did her own fitness program throughout her whole pregnancy and had an amazing birth. So check it out. Well, this is not a, a, a very comfortable topic to talk about, I have to say, but I'm glad we did it. And I hope that you guys felt that it was helpful to hear us kind of pull apart some of the most common reasons that we have heard that people felt like being in the hospital saved their lives. Um, and to be and, with it. What'd you say? And, to, and for us to be uncomfortable with it. Yeah. 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 So um, thank you all for listening. And um, what are we going to talk about over on Patreon today, Stu? We're going to talk about uh, a little bit of um, of the Zika virus thing that happened in 2015 and 2016, and a little bit more, like I talked about earlier, about some of the gaslighting with vaccine stuff, uh, about what really went on with that, and did it was it the scary thing that they made it out to be? So we're going to talk about that. Not just because Zika virus is likely to come back, but you know we've got disease X coming. We don't know what that is. <laughs> we're making a vaccine for it, but we don't know what it is. And other things, but just to understand how these organizations, like the World Health Organization, sometimes do things that aren't necessarily in your best interest. Let's let's go find out. Yeah, and it's good to look at the history. That's how we learn about things. So if you haven't already joined Patreon, come on over and join us over there. There's so many amazing things happening. We're going to be doing a live Q&A on the 30th of January, um, and um, we would love for you to be there. It'll be over by the time this comes out. We're going to have another one in February. <laughs> so <laughs> Sorry, you go, you go to uh, www.birthingandthingspodcast.com and that's where you'll find a link to our Patreon. And one final thing before Bliss says bye-bye, and that is check your spam box. <laughs> <laughs> and support our sponsors. Love you guys. Bye-bye. 
Thanks for listening to the Birthing Instincts podcast. We know that we all lead busy lives, so we are extremely grateful that you give us an hour of your time each week. If you enjoyed this episode, please share. And don't forget to subscribe to our podcast for the latest updates and reviews. To help others join us, you can find Dr. Stu at Birthing Instincts and Bliss at Birthing Bliss Midwifery on Instagram. 